morning, Canberra, and welcome to Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday. My name is Broderick Matthews, and it's a pleasure to be with you this morning as we bring you another fantastic hour of science that's happening right here in our capital, the city of Canberra. Thanks very much to Declan for Irish voice beforehand. Thoroughly enjoyed hearing uh, a bit of Dexies on there. Uh, But now we're going to move into the world of science. And I'm really excited today because it is Earth Science Week. It's just kicked off uh, and it's a fantastic opportunity to celebrate uh, the science of our Earth and everything that goes on within it and around it as well, uh, which is what we're going to be exploring today. I've got two wonderful guests in the studio, and we're going to be exploring the world of geodesy. That's right, we're going on a journey, um, probably not as epic as Homer's, but um, we're going to be defining geodesy and and, and what it's all about and uh, how we can... um, monitor what's going on. So let me introduce my guests. Uh, First of all, we've got uh, Nick Brown, Director of National Geodesy. Good morning, Nick. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Uh, Absolute pleasure. And on the other side of the desk is uh, Anna Riddell, Director of GNSS. GNSS. Let's get all all those letters in there. Analysis at Geoscience Australia. Good morning, Anna. Good morning. How are you going? Good. Good. Look, thanks both for joining us today. We're super excited to have you both here across from Geoscience Australia. Um, I mentioned the word geodesy in my introduction. We should probably start with defining that because it's a, it's a bit of a different way. It was one, I'm going to admit to my listeners here, I had to go up and look how it was uh, said. Geodesy, geodesy, geodesy. Yeah, I'm going to try my best to get it right all day. But w- what is it? Who wants to start off? Go for it, Anna. Yeah, look, so geodesy is very much about uh, the science of understanding the changes to the size and shape of our planet Earth, right? And so that includes its gravity field, it includes what happens on the surface and within the surface of the Earth. So, and shape, like the the, the shape of our Earth changes? The geometric shape of the Earth changes, yeah. Yeah. So we have a a very simple mathematical definition, which we define as an ellipsoid, Uh, so it's not flat. Sorry to debunk anybody's <laughs> myths there. It is definitely not flat. Starting off um, with the controversial face I know, this right, morning. Let's get that out of the way. So look, there's, we can define it very simply. It's a simple mathematical shape that we can use to describe the theory of what we think is happening. But then we have the physical reality of what the shape of the Earth actually is. It's lumpy, it's bumpy, it's weird. Um, and it changes due to forces that we can't always see as well. Um, one of the ways that we define the shape of the earth is around its gravitational um the gravity force that acts on the earth and so you think of how that changes as well so it's not just the size and the shape it's the change to that um daily monthly yearly millennially um it changes because there are forces and mass movements um that happen Um, probably one of the best examples is the gravitational force from the moon and the sun so we have our tides being the movement of earth a movement of bodies of water but we also have earth tides as well so the earth almost breathes if you like in and out and we get that daily change of the surface of the earth that's an amazing visual there just just imagining that whole earth i mean we talk a lot about mother nature but it really puts the whole whole planet it makes it feel even more living the planet is alive (laughs) and it's constantly shifting nothing is stable in our world of geodesy yeah awesome so i mean 
that that I guess begs the question of why it is so important to be monitoring those things. So you're talking about lots of movement here, but I'm imagining it's not on a large scale either, all this movement, or is it? Are, are we actually having things move hugely that we don't even know about? Yeah, I mean, it is it is significant. And if, you, if you're not taking these sort of things into account, the movement of the Earth and the spin rate of the Earth into account, things like GPS wouldn't work. So... You know, one of the things that pe- many people wouldn't realise, for example, is that the satellites that are in space that are sending us those signals for us to position ourselves, if you don't account for things like general relativity, which people never think of in a practical sense, right? Let's, oh yeah, I understand general relativity, but the, the people who develop GNSS systems like GPS... If you don't account for general relativity, then the position you get is actually off by kilometres. So that's, that's that's bringing science Einstein's into action. Yeah, Einstein's theory, theory of general, general relativity. Yeah, actually affects. There's actually a practical realization for that. <laughs> <laughs> who, who knew, right? Yeah. Well, did, did Einstein know at the time? Probably not, right? He, well, he he didn't know about GPS. No, but <laughs> he, he did. He he was using the the interesting thing was that he was using geodesy and and off-world versions of geodesy. So how the planets were moving around each other, he actually used planetary motion to be able to detect and prove his theories. That's that's amazing, and and so now now we're using it um, right here on Earth. So you talked about um, uh, GPS and, and that side of things and and the tracking, um, but I, I guess that's just just one example of of something that that we see every day. How else are we using it? Because um, I mean, I, well, I guess the, the question is, most people consider GPS as Google Maps in their car, maybe the the, the watch on their wrist when they go for a run or some sort of sport. Um, but but how else is is this data? Are being applied every day. So look, the term we use is positioning, or I guess um, location-enabled devices. So you mentioned a few. You've got um, maps on your phone. You've got your fitness tracker, whether you use an app or something like that. And it's about describing the location of something or a coordinate. And that's used, I guess, across the board within industry. Um, one of the the ones that hits home for me the most is in agriculture. So agriculture have been incredibly advanced and have been using precise positioning for more than 20 years, kind of since the satellites were launched. Um, and it's the idea that you can have autonomously linked systems. So the idea that if you're seeding in a really broad acre sense, so you're, um, you've got a wheat belt farm and you're wanting to plant your uh, seeds, you can send your seeder out to do that by itself. It's travelling in straight lines. You can program in exactly the track that you want your tractor to take and it will just go off and do that. And then the next time you come around and you want to fertilise or you want to um, spray or do something else, you can send the next bit of equipment out to do that same track because you've got it logged in your system and we have the positioning capability to do that within a couple of centimetres. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's fine-tuned stuff. That's right very fine-tuned. So that's using really high-quality equipment, but also the, the science and the technology behind it has been so well-developed. And we have a great... Um, we've got the infrastructure to support that in Australia, that we can have that positioning capability between anywhere from a centimetre to half a metre, which mm. is a massive improvement um, on what we used to have. Yeah, and look, agriculture is a huge industry in Australia, so I can imagine we'd want to be be quite good at it. But how do we rank when you look at us across the, the entire world? Are we are we really good at this, or are we still learning? We're one of the world leaders, actually, as Anna mentioned before. In Australia, we we're really one of the early adopters when it came to precision uh, agriculture. 
Um, and the the reason that geodesy is playing such a key role in that is because people don't think of it, but it's it's wibbling and wob- Earth is wibbling and wobbling through space, um, and the satellites are then trying to keep up, and they're they're actually falling around space. We're using that to position ourselves, um, and the Earth's moving as well. Um, you know, we've got things like Earth tides where you could be in northern Australia, and the Earth's actually growing and and shrinking by sixty centimeters across a day. Um, the Australian tectonic plates moving at seven centimeters a year. So if you're trying to send out all this autonomous technology, but you don't actually understand how the Earth is deforming and changing over time, if you're not accounting for that, then the the technology, the precision agriculture of getting an inter-row sowing happening at, at the centimeter level, if you're not accounting for all these other things that are moving on the Earth, it doesn't work. So this is why we, we're doing geodesy all the time. We haven't just measured it once like they did two and a half thousand years ago and they said, all right, we're done. Let's let's take the rest of the time off. <laughs> well, actually, let's let's step back in time for a moment because that's that's how I'm thinking of these these measurements and that sort of thing. You know, we've got things like tree points in Canberra up the top of the mountains and you, you look across from one to the other and, and that was how people many thousands of years ago did, um, you know, make those measurements. Is that what we're doing for, for geodetic movements, um, measurements now? It's essentially the same. So yeah. even up until pre-GPS, right, and even now today there's certain surveyors that will still use trig points. And you could essentially see the trig points of yesteryear being the satellites that are now in the sky. So the trig points have known coordinates and the satellites operate in much the same principle. So they're orbiting the Earth with known coordinates and they're sending their coordinates down to you and then using what we call space resection, the same way we did with resection on the land from trig points, you can get multiple different signals from GPS satellites and work out your location. So it operates on very much the same principle. It's just the satellites are moving differently to how the trig points were moving on the land. Yeah. And so how are those trig points marked on the land? Are they, are they giant giant uh, displays or have we got electronic equipment down there? How, how, are we, how are we monitoring those same points? So they're very, they're very much just a piece of... They're in, an installation. You can almost think of it as a sculpture. It's an installation yeah. that um, has been surveyed continuously and surveyed in a way that we know those coordinates and we trust those coordinates. So there's no electronics at a trig site. It is just that beautiful structure of the black disks um, and with the white I don't know, legs underneath it. Um, well, so sorry, it is it is the same ones. I was expecting something something more more advanced, but no, exactly those no, ones that we so see. The, yeah. the trick points are just for observation from a far point, yeah. I guess. The places where we do have the electronics and the I guess the collection of satellite data um, is a different piece of infrastructure, and we have that installed all over the country. And effectively, those um, what we call continuously operating reference sites, um, they're collecting data from the satellites every second. And all of that data is streamed back to Geoscience Australia. We host it and archive it in the data centre um, and then we crunch the numbers. And that's what we provide is um, the coordinated system um, that allows you to access precise positioning in Australia. So it allows us to to define latitude and longitude as well as the height and it gives the users a coordinate that they can trust and rely on and say I am here I'm not somewhere over there 10 meters away (laughs) (laughs) and that works by connecting um, 
any other electronic system, I guess, that wants to um, have a coordinate or a location or a position like your phone or um, like the tractor or your car, um, anything that wants a position can connect to the system that we provide at GA. Yeah, and so GA is constantly uh, putting out that that information. It's not a it's not a um, reference process, but it's a, a constant access. Like we'd access the the bomb data daily to understand our weather. You're sending out that data daily for yeah, or... it's, it's both. We um, we perform the role of I guess defining the frame of reference across Australia, which is ongoing. But then we also provide I guess data correction streams that allow you to get from that 10 meter bubble of accuracy that you might get from your phone down to a much um, a smaller bubble of accuracy that can be within half a meter. Yeah, okay. very exciting stuff indeed. Right, so and I guess um, uh, so from that you're you're measuring movements across the the planet as well, but you're also measuring um, the the planet and its movement through space mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Is is that relatively consistent? Like, are we are we continuing to, to maintain the same sorts of spins and orbits as we go around the sun? The, the way that I often try and describe it to people is you think about it in sort of rough orders of magnitude. I mean, to a, from a very simplistic point of view, the, the, they have this orbital motion, which is you can, you can do on sort of at the back of an envelope to predict where, you know, planets and satellites will be. But if, when you're trying to measure things to a high degree of accuracy you actually need to account for more movements and interactions of these planets and the moon and the sun together. So as we're driving towards getting these centimetre level requirement applications in Australia, things like precise positioning for agriculture or, um, you know, Uber deliveries of your coffee, whatever these really important applications are, um, you need to account for more things about these, the movements of the earth. So, that's why we're measuring things in more detail because it actually opens up a wider number of applications and as you improve the accuracy at which you, at which you can position something. Yeah, okay. And so um, where, where can you see this going at this point in time? Like how, how, how far down do we need to get in terms of our accuracy? Are we going to get down to, to millimetres in, in what we're doing and, and you know, set points? You've got to look at sort of the cost-benefit ratio, I think. Um, so a good example that I'd use is that in, recently we've just signed a, a very big contract with, um, with a company that's going to be providing services from a satellite called SouthPan. And so SouthPan um, is a satellite that's providing, at, at the moment, about half a metre accurate positioning capability for all Australians across the whole country, maritime jurisdiction, and we're doing it in conjunction with New Zealand. So we, as, as government, at Geoscience Australia, put a business case up to government saying investment of this amount of money is going to provide this much um, income back to the Australian government. And so we could demonstrate a really good cost-benefit analysis to say if we can provide half a metre or 10 centimetre ultimately is what we're driving to, positioning services, the opportunities this opens up for industries like autonomous mining, precision agriculture, location-based services like you get in your mobile phone, being able to provide that kind of capability for all Australians brings in so much revenue for the country. We can already measure things. If we, if we go to the next level at that millimetre level, we as geodesists, we can do that with 
very expensive technology that we currently have. You know, the antenna that's in your phone is probably um, you know, almost as big as a pinhead. The antennas that we use to measure satellite signals, you're looking at the size of a small pizza, that, that kind of size. So we can already do that, and we do that to try and understand other things that are going on within the Earth and monitoring the Earth. Um, so that we can then provide applications at sort of that, that next level of accuracy for everybody else. I think one of the, the best examples is that we can measure at that millimetre, almost sub-millimetre level. Um, and I guess the one that I've done a bit of research on for my um, PhD was around understanding the vertical land motion of Australia. And that ties into that idea of if we're wanting to have an understanding of what sea level is doing and how that is changing, we know that's a couple of mils a year, the traditional way of measuring sea level is using a tide gauge, but the tide gauge is attached to the land and the land is also moving. And so you've got to have that absolute understanding of what's going on in the system. And we can do that with a position from GPS and you can get that at the millimetre level. So once you understand how the land is moving at the millimetre level, and we can also measure sea level at the millimetre level, you can start to see what might happen in the scenario of the sea is rising, but the land is also sinking relatively in that local community. If you get a high sea level event, you're going to get much more inundation happening because the land is sinking, allowing more water to come onto the land. Um, and we are able to do that now, but like Nick said, it's with a whole host of um, fancy and expensive equipment. <laughs> so it's not easily accessible, I guess. Um, the benefit of the satellite that's just gone up that's going to be available is available now is that that's available to everybody right and if you want to get into the really high precision stuff um we've got some technology we can apply to any application you want it's just most people don't need it i think that's what we're getting at yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so you've got a range of tools for a range of situations exactly yeah yeah, yeah. We, when we pull out the tools that we need for to solve certain problems yeah Awesome. Well, I'm keen to explore more about uh, South Pan and what that's uh, that's all about there, and uh, keep going through the uh, the world of geodesy. Uh, but let's have a short music break before we do. That was Beth and Ben there with Little Lady. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic on 2XXFM uh, Community Radio here in Canberra. This is People Powered Radio, and uh, you might be listening at uh, 98.3 FM or streaming online at 2XXFM.org.au, which is also where you can subscribe to the station and support the work that we do. Uh, I'm really excited today to have uh, two uh, geodetic scientists from Geoscience Australia in the studio with me, Nick Brown and Anna Riddell, and we are talking all about geodesy, tracking the, the planet and the movement and both side to side, up and down and all, all around, right? Any direction. Um, and and before we went to the break, we were we were talking about South Pan and the the, the satellite there that's um, not so much just been launched, but the the ability for us to track that has just been activated, um, which is really exciting. Um, but the other recent news that we did have as well was that uh, the Earth recently had its shortest day since scientists started keeping records. How how short is our shortest day? <laughs> like, well, actually, no, maybe I should start. 
the, the question first is how much does our, our day length vary? Uh, did, you, did you just feel like you could get nothing done that day? Yeah, right? that's was, right. I was like, there was no time at all. It was 1.59 milliseconds shorter, <laughs> shorter than the average. I mean, I just, I, yeah, it explained a lot. I just felt like I couldn't get anything finished that yeah, day. Yeah, no. Um, so it it varies a bit. It varies, yeah. um, and you think about ever since the Big Bang. I, I, one of the numbers that I read that the Earth has been slowing down, and if you look at something like six hundred million years ago, like we weren't around, but six hundred million years ago, the length of the day was about twenty one hours. So it, wow. it has been slowing down generally over over longer periods of time as we think about it. Um, so, and since the sixties, there's been a bit of a blip every now and then where it speeds up again. Um, so I, I'll let Anna explain it. She's done her PhD on understanding things like this. So, um, (laughs) around things like the wobble of the earth and how that spin rate changes, do you want to maybe describe that? And then I can talk about some of the technology maybe that we use to try and measure it. Yeah, I guess so. Think of us sitting on this giant rock flying through space, right? It's, uh, we're traveling pretty fast. But in essence, the the length of the day is measured by our rotation speed, okay? And so the rotation of the Earth completes in what we would consider to be bang on 24 hours. In reality, because of the way the Earth is rotating and the way it sits on the rotation axis, it sits a bit, squi- a bit squiffy, it's not straight, and it wobbles around as it, um, as it spins, the... It's, I guess you can think of the spinning almost analogous to a dancer twirling, right? When they have their arms out wide, they tend to slow down a little bit. But when they bring their arms in close and they make their, um, their body a bit tighter, their spin rate can speed up. And that's to do with the distribution of where their arms are and how, how strong and tight they can be. It's kind of, if you think about that as the earth spinning as a dancer, um, when the earth has more mass at the equator it tends to slow down but as you redistribute that mass to the poles closer to the rotation axis it starts to spin up and that's what we've seen we've seen a redistribution of mass whether that's ice snow water land as the continents move around as the plates drift about um, we experience that change in spin rate and that's that's effectively what we saw on um, at the end of June when we had our shortest day. It was the redistribution of mass within the Earth system that caused it to sped up a little bit. Are you able to identify specifically what it is, or is it just really the combination of all those factors? It's really hard to isolate individual things um, or components, but when you you can theorize about what it might be, and I think the theory for the shortest day um, in June was about the ice and um, glacier distribution from the north um, and particularly, well, around it was um, the northern summer, our middle of our winter, but they had that redistribution of mass um, up at the North Pole and I think they think that might be what it's around. Um, There's been other events as well, things like when you get a major earthquake, for example, sometimes you also do see a blip in this in the spin rate of the earth so if you get a big event you sometimes you can pick it but i think with this one at the moment there's they seem to think it's a combination of lots of different things that we're seeing yeah okay is, is there anything um 
to be to be very egocentric as a human can 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 human movement actually change the movement of the earth or is are we just not like if you think about a pilgrimage to mecca or something like that like you've got millions of people <laughs> tracking there is that enough to change it I've, I've always wanted to do that experiment if you could get <laughs> yes. one hemisphere to jump all at the same time <laughs> whether or not we could actually make a change i I don't know. I don't know. We haven't run the maths okay. on that one. Yeah. We'll have to get back to you. Yeah. In, the, uh, in the scale of percentages, I think that's, that's fairly small. But, I mean, we do have our own effects. We've, we've got built infrastructure that's heavy, that sits on the crust of the earth, that can cause changes. Yeah. Um, if you think of um, where we extract resources, whether that be groundwater or um, other minerals that we extract, that's changing the surface of the earth. And sometimes we change the mass as well. Um, Over in Perth, they have to be quite conscious about how much water they extract from their their groundwater aquifer because it does depress the surface of the earth as they draw the water out. And so you see um, in the surface movement at Perth, the city sinks a little bit in a drought year because they've drawn all the water out of the aquifer. Um, and so we as humans are causing changes. Um, I don't know that we would cause that much, though, to change yeah. the spin rate. Yeah, more about it'd be fun how. to try though. Wouldn't it'd be it? fun to try. Why not? Everybody yeah. suddenly rushed to the left. Yeah. Go. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah. Yeah, Nick was talking about the big earthquakes. I think the one that sticks in my mind is the Tohoku Oki one in Japan in 2011. The geometry of that and the shift that happened as part of the earthquake was in the same um, in the same direction as the Earth's rotation, and that also shortened our day on that day because the earthquake sped up the rotation of the Earth. Mm. Like it's just these crazy movements that happen that um, cause. Well, and they're all normal. They're all natural. It's part of the Earth system. It's yeah. just that um, we've been around for such a short time. It seems surprising to us every time we cross a new discovery. That's right. Again, yeah, being being humans, we we think everything is nice and neat, and and we package it up. I mean, I mean, an hour is essentially a human division of the day, anyway. But but we still continue to think, yeah, twenty four and zero zero <laughs> is is the number of hours in a day. Yeah, and so you were talking. In terms of that, that's how it all changes. But what does that mean for the the technology side of things, and and how we're, we're keeping things updated and going on? Yeah, so it's important that we're we're measuring and monitoring these things because, as as we alluded to before, it's we're not trying to understand things like the spin rate of the Earth just because we're interested in it. It's actually a really important. Um, principle to understand to to know then the the relationship between satellites and the earth if you if you want these satellites that are operating uh, in orbit around us to know let, let's say for example earth um, observation satellites they need to reobserve the same locations on the earth over and over and over again so they need to understand the relationship between their position and the earth's position so we need to know where is the Earth in inertial space. So if you, the analogy I like to use is if you imagine yourself sitting on a basketball and it's just spinning, 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 like 400 metres per second or whatever it is, you're going to get dizzy really quick, that's one. But you, it's also really hard to understand where you sit in, in space. Um, so we use these distant objects in space called quasars, and quasars are like supermassive black holes with disk um, orbits uh, of gas, disk... Um, flowing out of them and we're using those to try and um, provide uh, stable positions in space so we're measuring the spin rate of the earth or the movement of the earth with respect to these quasars and we just assume that those quasars are stable (laughs) static because relatively they are this is that magical word again relatively Uh, 
relative to the Earth, they're very stable. So we can use those as stable objects to detect how Earth is moving over time. So that's our astronomical trig points, really. Exactly. That's yeah. a great way to think yeah. about it. Yeah. And we use, we use a wonderful technique called very long baseline interferometry. They're essentially big um, dishes, antennas that sit on Earth. And we have a number of them spread around the Earth. And by measuring the, the difference in time that it takes to reach, let's say, one antenna on the east coast of Australia, the same signal to reach the, the west coast of Australia, you can actually then, using some mathematics, work out the distance between those points on Earth and also measure how quickly the Earth moved um, be, because those signals are arriving at different times. Yeah. And when you say very long in that, that baseline <laughs> inferometry, how... We haven't how, come how up with a better name yet, but... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It does what it says on the tin, I, right, Brad? Well, well that, that's what it's, how long is very long? Because you're talking, are you talking light years here? So when we're talking about long, we're talking about the distance between where those antennas oh, are on Earth, not not out to the quasars, not out to the quasars, because right. yeah, that's um that yeah that's, that's harder very to do. Long. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so we do that, and the great thing is we collaborate with other countries to do it. So. Geodesy is not a science you do on your own. We're, we collaborate with countries all around the world and we've got organisations. We work together on government and scientific levels because we need each other's data. And then we work with global analysis centres to combine all this information together and use the products equally, which is a wonderful thing about our science. Yeah. And do different countries have different struggles with, with their, their geodesy? I can't imagine each, uh, each country is unique. Uh, sorry, I can imagine each country is... A yeah, it, it is. You're spot on. And it's something... So I'm involved with a, um, an organisation called the Subcommittee on Geodesy, and this sits under the United Nations. So this is recognition. Um, there was a resolution that was passed by the UN General Assembly in 2015, recognising the importance of geodesy and what it's bringing to society and industry um, and our economies. So... Um, as part of that, it's about working together to help explain the importance of what we do so that we can increase that recognition within government where, where we're getting funding from. Um, so Australia, we, we're, we're seen as doing a really good job in terms of providing the infrastructure that we need and the services that people need. But there are many other countries who are really struggling to explain the importance of this science and the, the reliance that they're... they're um, that societies have on geodesy without even knowing it. So a big bit of what we need to do is things like this. Talk to people and try and explain our science in terms people can understand. Help them realise that they're reliant on it. Um, and, yeah, we, we're helping other countries to try and do that as well in the hope that they can improve their infrastructure and, and their services for people. Yeah, and then in turn, I, I presume it gives us more data as well so we can build, build that bigger picture. Exactly. As you were talking about before, can we get down to that next level of accuracy? That's heavily dependent on what we get from other countries as well. So we need to be invested and in working with those other countries. Otherwise, we're never going to be able to achieve what we need in Australia. Yeah, very exciting indeed. Um, so uh, to, to continue with that that tracking path that we were talking about before um i'm i'm curious just to take a step back and and we were talking about the the distant objects that you're measuring and that sort of thing but as as we're entering the the space race again and 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 moving into you know landing on the moon potentially and looking at other planets and that sort of thing are, are we looking at any um sort of tracking out there and, and putting trig points on on those planets and that sort of thing to understand how we're going yeah, look, there are definitely conversations about what our future looks like 
particularly with the moon landing, what happens if we put... Um, well, how do we get positioning on the moon? So there's a, a mission that's going up. I can't recall the name of it. I'll have to come back to you. But it's about effectively putting um, GPS on the moon, but it's the ability to um, receive the signals from the satellites that are not necessarily designed. The satellites were designed to point to Earth, not point to the moon. So the first question is, can you get the signal from the satellite (laughs) on the moon? And then can you use that as a bounce relay for the next step to explore Mars? Could you put a not only a receiver, but then a transponder? So you're kind of acting as a relay on the moon to get the signal to the next next bit that you want to explore. Um, and we've been from Earth, we've ranged to the moon before in terms of we know where the moon is because we can ping it with a laser and get a return. Um, lunar laser ranging is something we've done in Canberra and been very good at it. Um, and then that translates to pinging space lasers at other satellites to know where they are in space. Um, but the idea of yeah, that that relay and getting a position in space gets a whole lot more complicated because you're dealing with no atmosphere. You're, well, it's actually much simpler, sorry, I should say. <laughs> you're not dealing with an atmosphere. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's all of the orbital dynamics in space that you can't predict. Space is strange and um, there are other forces that we don't necessarily understand. Um, so it gets that's the next level, yeah. I guess. Yeah, because uh, the the moon isn't just sitting a, a constant distance from us at Earth, is it? And, and I presume the same with all the other planets as well. Yeah, and so that's thinking to change how we look at things. And yeah, it's, it's positioning. It's exciting, though. It's a it's a great opportunity, and it's something. So we have been talking with people like the Australian Space Agency on how do we collaborate with organisations like NASA in the US, and what role can Australia play in doing this kind of work. Um, yeah, positioning is the the principles are the same, but we don't quite have the infrastructure everywhere that we need. So it's it's interesting to think about how do we translate what we use on Earth to to other planets, um, and it essentially it comes down to timing. Every all these systems are all built around timing. To know the the difference in time it takes for a signal to get from one place to another, if you can do that really accurately, then chances are that you can position. Um, timing's the really important principle. So I guess then uh, how um, I might be getting too meta here and you might say, no, need this for the <laughs> physicists, but how, how do we know that our timing is accurate? How, how do we know that we're getting the, the most accurate measurement of time that we can as we do all this? Yeah, this is very meta. I like, <laughs> I like where this is going. So we do, we, we do use, um, back to that VLBI one, for example, that's the key one that we use um, to measure time um, relative to quasars, and that gives you um, make sure that we keep our the spin rate of the Earth in sync with things like atomic clocks. So we have a an astronomical way of thinking about time and how long it takes the Earth to to orbit around the Sun or the Earth to spin in one day. Um, we then try and translate that into things like atomic clock time, and they're really good at providing really really precise time. Uh, when you link those together. So that links the astronomical down to atomic clocks and we, we manage the differences <coughs> excuse me, between those. Um, and then we use things like GPS, a, a different geodetic technique, to actually provide the synchronisation of time. So signals go up to GPS satellites and then they provide that information down to us in mobile phones 
they help us sync um, synchronize things like uh, the financial transactions that we use or maintaining the internet or electricity grids they're all very reliant on having synchronized time so this is another example that I mentioned before the United Nations work we're doing you explain that to people who don't understand geodesy but you say geodesy is actually underpinning how well you're running your um, financial systems or your electricity grids, that really gets their attention because <laughs> geodesy sort of sits at the core of so much of what we do, but people don't see it and don't recognize it. So it's therefore under-resourced and undervalued. So being us talking about this and helping create those links is what we really need to do to explain the importance of our science. That was the Royal Belgian Conspiracy there with Under Trembling Skies, the track of the week here on 2XXFM. Uh, some fantastic local music right there. You're listening to Fuzzy Logic here on our community radio station. Uh, Broderick Matthews here with you, and joining me in the studio are Nick Brown and Anna Riddell, uh, both of Geoscience Australia. We're very thankful to, to GA for... Uh, sending some of their best scientists over here to Fuzzy Logic and we can chat about uh, different uh, geological things. And today it's all about geo... Yeah. I, 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 almost, oh, almost. You caught yourself. I thought I was going to get geodesy. Put your money in the jar. <laughs> <laughs> uh, geodesy is, is what we're talking about. We've been talking about um, tracking the, the movement of the earth for our, our positioning and, and the many ways that that happens. Uh, but... Uh, I had heard recently that Geoscience Australia conducted a gravity survey. Now, what on earth is a gravity survey? How, how do you go about that? I'm presuming it's not someone with a clipboard asking questions. <laughs> <laughs> no, so survey in this sense of the word is the large-scale collection of data, I guess you could say. Um, Traditionally, gravity surveys have been, you can perform them on the ground, so you can walk around with a gravimeter or a very good accelerometer um, and uh, sit it in place and measure the change in gravity. Um, we've done that and we still do that. We have um, set observatories all over Australia where we have a known mark and we know what gravity is at that point very, very well. Um, but that doesn't give you the continuity of data that you might want over a large area. It's quite difficult to do that of Australia, large continent, um, many inaccessible remote areas. It's not, I guess, logistically or financially easy to walk around, fly around, wheelbarrow around a gravimeter. They're quite large. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let's take a moment. What is a gravimeter? Like, like what makes that up to measure gravity? Yeah, so there's a few different ways you can do it. Um, the In an absolute sense, the best way that we're able to do that at the moment is to carry around a tiny vacuum chamber that drops a ball and we measure the drop rate of that ball in a vacuum. Um, Very much like the apple falling from the tree. Yeah. Just, just with, yeah, high degree of precision that's all yeah that's right. um, so how quickly the ball falls to the ground exactly changes and and we're talking millisecond changes yeah here. micro gal micro, yeah, yeah. micro gal. um and so that's that's i guess the absolute sense and then we also have relative ways of doing that as well which are more spring-based um you can drop something and measure the rebound on the spring um so but not effective across the whole country. Not effective though, across no. the whole country. That's a point-based measurement, I guess. You take it, you set it up, and you take a point-based. It doesn't give you an idea of the area that you might be operating. The 
way that we're doing that to cover large areas is to stick the gravimeter in an air or an aeroplane, effectively. You make it airborne, <laughs> right? And you can just fly it over large swaths, um, and that gives you a much better spatial coverage. Um, and we also have satellite missions that are capable of measuring gravity and changes in gravity as well. Probably one of the best well-known ones is called GRACE, or the GRACE experiment, and that's effectively two satellites that um, follow each other, and it's a bit like two cars following each other. If you get to a hill, the front one slows down a little bit as it hits the hill and the back one catches up. And so the distance between the two satellites shortens or lengthens. Um, and then as you crest the hill and the front satellite starts going down the hill or the front car, it speeds up. And so by measuring the change in the distance between the two satellites, you can measure the changes in gravity because the hill is equivalent to um, a large, dense mass and that changes the way gravity ch happens around that dense mass. Yeah. Um, and so that's how we measure gravity from space. Um, and measuring gravity in an airborne platform is, is what we're doing at the moment over parts of southeast Victoria. Um, New South Wales have also kicked off an, an airborne gravity survey. Um, and we're about to start one in South Australia as well. And I think that's a good reminder to talking about the space measurements that... Um, that is how satellites go around the Earth. Like they're not, they're, it's, it's um, you know something you, you might do in, in your high school physics, but I think we forget sometimes that it is they're rotating because of gravity in place. Um, it's not because they're they're powered vehicles or anything like that. So to, they're to, just constantly falling around the Earth, and the yeah. Earth's getting away before it can fall into it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then, and but there's those slight variations as per you're talking perturbations about as well. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we we tend to call them anomalies because yeah. we have a base map of the 9.81, what everybody knows gravity to be, yeah. and we see the anomalies or the perturbations or the the slight, very minute changes that allow us to understand different densities in rocks, um, different attractions of mass, different gravitational forces, which all cause, if you look at the rainbow-coloured maps, um, the changes in the colour or the changes in the, the measurement or the magnitude of gravity at that point. Yeah. So does it, does it always correspond to, you know, mountainous areas having, having more earth there? I mean, it's earth, stone, yeah. rock, whatever you want to call it. Um, there is, is higher gravity or does it vary based on other things than just elevation? It's, it's predominantly due to um, things like the mass and, and the density of the rocks that you're talking about. So by combining the, the space, the airborne and the terrestrial gravity observations, you actually capture the gravity field of the earth at different wavelengths and you put that all together to then help you understand uh, that there might be certain density of rock that's at quite a depth. Um, so we use that in for things like mineral prospectivity, you know, for, for different regions, if we've got different uh, rock mass densities, can we determine whether or not that's a certain type of, it might be a, a copper formation or it could be gold or it could be something else. So we can a, a try and differentiate where these mineral resources might be under the earth. And that's traditionally how the, the gravity data has been used. We're, we're now taking that and using it for a geodetic point of view because... Um, uh, we can we can use the changes in the Earth's gravity field to also help us understand height systems better. And um, water flows according to gravity, so we need to account for gravity when we're doing our positioning. So, so tr traditionally, we've done these gravity surveys in Australia for resource 
um, type work. Now we're actually using it for geodesy as well and working with those resource teams. So hold on, let me just pick you up on there. You said water flows due to gravity. Yeah. But like normally that's just down a hill, right? So you, if you have water at the top of the hill and it flows down to the bottom. You hope so. Yeah. yeah. But it doesn't happen on every hill. That's the problem. So there's some <laughs> okay. hills where you may actually go out and measure. Um, let's say you went out and measured the difference in height using GPS only. Now, as Anna mentioned before, GPS, it's a, it's a geometric measurement. It's not actually accounting for the Earth's gravity field at all. It's the height differences you get are relative to a really simplified ellipsoid version of the Earth. Um, gravity is a lot more complex than that. It's got a lot of wobbles and, and, and bumps in it. So if you, let's say the analogy I like to use, it really sticks in people's mind. If you're establishing a sewerage network in a new construction site, you don't want to just go and measure the, the uh, difference in height between the high point and the low point of this network using GPS alone, you want to account for the Earth's gravity field because there are actually places on the Earth where the high to low from GPS doesn't match up the high to low that you get when you measure with respect to gravity as well. So you always got to account for gravity to make sure the stuff is flowing in the right direction, shall we say. <laughs> and how often is that genuinely considered in, you know, like, a new real, real estate development or something like that every every time every time yeah so this is well known to surveyors and, and geodesists and engineers this is always accounted for and we have these models called geoid models and they're effectively uh, a representation of what the what the shape of the earth would look like um, if the earth stopped spinning and you just looked at mean sea level um, so in places like the on the coastline of australia um, the difference between mean sea level height and the height you get from GPS can differ between about minus 30 and plus 70 metres across Australia. So you need a model to account for the Earth's gravity field and apply that minus 30 to plus 70 metre difference. Um, that's the geoid model that we use. If you're not accounting for that, then you can get some yeah pretty drastic uh, issues for your town planning exercises. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Well, look, we've covered a lot on our journey through Geodesy today. Uh, I'm going to give you one last question, but only a very short time to answer it. What, what excites you most about the future of Geodesy? Oh, look, it's look, it's every I don't know futuristic dream of autonomous flying cars, right? The ability to jump in a car big, and not Anna, have to do anything, all right? Yeah. Um, and that will be enabled by positioning. Of course, it'll be integrated with all of the other systems, but fundamentally, you need to know where you are and where you're going next, and that, that's enabled by Geodesy. For me, it's really around the stuff that we don't know. Um, we're now providing technology, um, you know, and this is not too far distant future. We're providing technology now through things like SouthPan and the Positioning Australia program to allow people, everyone to be able to access precise positioning. The bit that excites me is what are people going to do with it? I think we came up with some ideas justified that it's worth the money, but I'm really interested to see what is industry and what are people sitting in their garage going to go out and develop using this precise positioning technology. Very exciting indeed. If people want to find out more about Geoscience Australia's work on Geodesy, where can they go? So they can come to our website um, and we've got some, um, some Science Week activities going on at the moment. Um, things like tours, um, Auslan tours. We've got um, performances going on where comedians are converting some of our science into through improv. Um, 
but started our website. It's a great place to start. We've got information in there on Geodesy. And if they want to know more, then, yeah, they can get in touch with Anna and myself. We're always happy to, to talk Geodesy as we are with you, Brod. So thanks for having us in. Yeah, no, thank you, Bo. No, thank you so much. This has been brilliant. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, and I've, I've really enjoyed talking through Geodesy and, and getting to know uh, a lot more about all these things that are really going on around us just without uh, without much awareness at this point in time, the different things that happen. And yes, as Nick said, it is Earth Science Week as well, so make sure you check out all the fantastic events that Geoscience Australia is hosting on their website and uh, I think you'll find some on their Facebook page as well. Uh, speaking of Facebook, you can find Fuzzy Logic on Facebook and Twitter. We're there. You can also email us any questions, askfuzzy at zoho.com. That's Z-O-H-O.com. And uh, you can find our podcast online as well. Just search for Fuzzy Logic and you'll find that autumn leaf. My name's Broderick Matthews and this has been Fuzzy Logic, your science on a Sunday.